Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's special episode of How I Lawyer Panel Opinion, I'm excited to speak with two law firm partners on how to succeed as a junior associate in a law practice or law firm. My panelists today are what I call pocket friends, people I have never met in person, but have got to know fairly well on social media and are both people who have shown interest and kindness in sort of making our profession better. So I'm really glad they're here. Their names are Sean Murata and Michelle Strohiro. Michelle's an employment partner and M&A transaction advisor in McDermott's LA and Orange County offices. She leads McDermott's Transactions and Executive Contracts Employment Subgroup and co-leads McDermott's COVID-19 Employment Task Force. Michelle was recently named a trailblazer by American Lawyer and a labor employment star by Benchmark Litigation. She's also, as I said, active in mentoring junior lawyers, both formally and informally within her firm and on social media. She's a graduate of Loyola School of Law, Go Lions, and UCLA, Go Bruins. Thanks for being here, Michelle. Thanks, Jonah. And Sean is an appellate litigation partner at Hogan Levels DC. If you hang out at Twitter, on Twitter at all, you'll know him from his uh, regular appellate Twitter tweeting. In his professional life, Sean's worked on cases and appeals in many different substantive areas of law, uh, but has particular experience in civil procedure, automotive, energy, and administrative appeals. He's received a number of awards and recognitions for his work, included being selected a DC Rising Star by the National Law Journal. Like Michelle, Sean's deeply dedicated to advancing the profession and mentoring junior lawyers. He is active, as I said, or should I say even prolific on social media. He's a graduate of the College of New Jersey, uh, Go Lions also, and William Mary Law, where he graduated as valedictorian, Go Tribe. Thanks for being here, Sean. Thank you so much. So look, before we dive into some advice, I want to take you both back a little bit to when you were more junior lawyers. So what's an early memory you have, something that excited you, scared you, frustrated you, surprised you, or had an impact? Um, And maybe we'll start with Sean and then we'll go to Michelle. Yeah, I think what surprised me when I first started out is you work at these big law firms, but even there, like people take your advice seriously and act on it. Hmm. One of my first weeks at the firm, the partner came to me and said, okay, the general counsel of this big Fortune 20 company would like to know what to do about X. And I sort of sat around and I noodled about it and I did some research and I did some thinking and I put together an email and the partner looked at it and he said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And so we hopped on a phone call and the general counsel listened as the partner essentially read my email. And then the general counsel said, yeah, okay, let's do that. And I remember thinking like, I have no experience. Like (laughs) you people shouldn't listen to me. You know, you collectively are, you know, lawyers with 30 years experience running one of the largest law departments in our country. Like maybe somebody should check this first. And of course, they do check it. They check it against their experience. They check it against their knowledge. They gut check it and common sense. But one of the things is, is that you think you're this cog in the machine, but it turns out actually a lot of the work comes bottom up 
and we'll talk about it, but a lot of it means that like oftentimes the first idea that somebody has is sometimes the idea you go with. Hmm. And so if you come in thinking my work doesn't matter, that's just not true. In fact, you're the person doing all the spade work that is going to lead to decisions by very senior people on very consequential decisions. And that's kind of cool because I think there is a sense if you're from the outside to think that a big law firm is just, you're the peon who, who labors in the background, but actually you do make a difference in how matters go. And I remember being really sort of stunned by the fact that like somebody was paying a lot of money for my advice and was willing to do what I would say, even though I'm not sure I would have done what I had said if I were in my position. Yeah. I love that. Sometimes I say to my students that oftentimes it's like landing a plane for the first time, but you don't tell the passengers on the plane that it's your first landing, but like you have to <laughs> land first at some point. And to remember that there was like a lot of training that went into it. It wasn't like they wouldn't let you land the plane if you didn't have sufficient training, but you still have your, your first time. I think that's a really great way to start off. Michelle, what, what's your memory? Yeah, so I will take us all the way back to before I was a junior associate to when I was a summer Love associate. It. So not even graduated yet, right? Summer between my second and third year. And I was a summer associate at a big law firm. And I was working at the time when you summered, you got to kind of do a little bit of everything. I think now we kind of assign people to groups right away. But I was you know, doing litigation. I was doing transactional work, employment law work. And that's, of course, where I ended up going is employment law. And I was kind of, it was a mixture of surprise and excitement and fear and, and a huge impact on my career that my experience as a summer associate and my shock was that they really trusted us to do real work. And maybe in part, that was because my experience as a summer associate was the summer of 09. It was like right after the, the terrible crash. And so they really needed us to do legitimate work and they were putting us to the test. It was not a cushy summer. But it was really surprising. I got to do, you know, real work with the employment group and I got to do declaration gathering for class cert briefing and actually spoke with real people at companies where we were having a real impact. And so that was what was really surprising to me because I think big law gets kind of a bad rap for sticking junior associates on doc review for three years uh, at the outset, which might be some people's experience and might be the case in some cases, but was definitely not my experience. Yeah. It, which sort of brings me to my first question, which is a little bit to that frustration, right? You both talked about finding that people were actually listening to you and you were doing real work from day one. And right, that makes sense. The law firm model, the financial model doesn't work if people aren't doing real work from day one. At the same time, I hear from summer associates and junior associates all the time, and especially former students who come in and they feel like they get to a law firm and they're like starting over. Like they've started, they've spent all this time in edu getting education, getting legal education, taking the bar, and they're literally starting from the beginning, building a timeline of facts or going to, I mean, going to a storeroom and like looking for documents. Or they just feel like sort of Sean was saying, like they weren't thinking that people were actually going to trust them. So I guess my, my question would be, what do you recommend that junior lawyers do sort of in those first couple of months or year of practice to sort of get on that path? And we'll start with Michelle. Yeah, that's a really great question. I remember when I first started at a firm, I not only was it, you know, maybe a little bit frustrating, but mm. mostly just scary 
for me, it was my first like kind of what I would call like a big girl job, right? Like I went straight through from college to law school and I I worked some some jobs here and there, but this was like my first FLSA exempt job. That's an <laughs> um, employment lawyer speaking right there. That is that is an employment lawyer, tried and true. I feel like you kind of sit down at your desk and like with your orientation packet and then like a giant briefcase full of like imposter syndrome, like why am I here? Like I don't know anything. And I think the first thing I'd tell first year associates is like, this is going to be a relief to you. Nobody expects you to know anything, you know, about the substance of the Mm -hmm. law that you're advising on. The partners have 10, 20, 30 years experience and know the the nuts and bolts and the substance. You're there because you're incredibly smart and capable. And think about those first few months as really your opportunity to make a fantastic first impression on people on your kind of quote unquote clients, Hmm. which are the senior associates and the partners that you work with. And you don't need to do that by having like the most in-depth knowledge of the law itself, because again, you don't have that experience. It's totally expected, but you can do that in so many other ways with your amazing attitude, your willingness to take on different kinds of work and, and then just knocking your first assignments out of the ballpark. I think is really important and, and not an easy task, but that's, I think what first year associates in those first few months or even that first year, that's what you're doing, right? You're you're doing everything for the first time. And it's it's really scary. Uh and and as Sean mentioned, you know, people really are counting on you to get it right. And important clients are expecting that you're gonna come to them with great answers. Hmm. And and that's all expected in this kind of big law world. Um, and so part of what you're doing in those first few months is also learning on your own time or maybe your firm like McDermott, we have you know some billable credit time that you can use for learning that doesn't get charged to clients because clients shouldn't have to pay for that. But mm-hmm. that's kind of what you're doing in your first first few months is is getting your your uh, feet under you and making sure you understand kind of the basics and and then just really killing it on your first few assignments. Hmm. Sean? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with everything Michelle said. And I don't want to you know, fight the premise of the question because I do think most people do walk in with a huge amount of imposter syndrome. And in fact, I carry it with me today. It turns out it doesn't go away. Um, I still think that they're going to realize that like, I'm funny on Twitter, but I actually don't know what I'm doing. Um, but one thing is, is you don't appreciate how much law school and the experience of law school changes your thinking and your mindset and your vocabulary. I mean, if you think you know nothing, hmm. go talk to some non-lawyer relatives or friends who don't know what plaintiffs are, defendants are, who don't know appellate courts from trial courts, who don't know with respect to... Um, who don't know anything about, you know, what facts are going to matter to a court or why you would organize facts in a certain way around elements. I mean, you have that hardwired into you, but because you've been surrounded all other law students your whole life, you think everyone knows that. And so you don't, you don't stand apart. In fact, you do. You walk in knowing a vocabulary and having background, you know, it's cliche to say you learn how to think like a lawyer at law school, but you do. And so that is a big part of what you bring in and be confident in that. And then with respect to what you should be doing your first couple of months is be intensely curious. Um, that is both in the casework or matter work you're doing. So don't just do the thing that's been handed to you, but try to find out why you're doing those things. Where is this thing going? How does this thing fit into the rest of the things that the team is doing? 
you know, if you're on a deal, why are we structuring the deal this way? If you're on a case, like, what is this brief in the broader scope of the case? Or, you know, when you get red lines back, hey, why did you do this instead of the other thing? And, you know, there will probably be at least somebody in your mentorship circle who loves to hear themselves talk. That's <laughs> and I who would love to explain all of these things because it makes me feel like I know something because I don't maybe know a lot, but I know more than the summer associates. So I can definitely teach them stuff that I've learned through hard won experience. And then on the business side of a law firm, you know, ask like, all right, we got this new matter in and you asked me how many hours it would take. So, you know, like, what are you thinking on the budget? Like, how much does this cost? Like, how do you negotiate that with a client? Or, you know, who's this client we're working with? Do you know this counsel? Or, you know, if you get off a call and you say, all right, why did you do this instead of the other thing when dealing with a certain matter? You know, you're not gonna take hours of someone's time, but if you throw out five, seven minutes worth of teaching, you learn a lot and just ingest it all and you have a better sense because people just don't do things. I think people really do have reasons for it and you're going to start learning some of those lessons and hopefully implementing some of them in your, in your day-to-day life and you won't feel quite at sea anymore. Yeah. And Sean, do you think you should be asking for that feedback? Because one of the challenges I think is some people are sort of like natural mentors and natural builders of the profession and some people aren't. Like, is it weird for somebody to sort of ask for feedback? No, I don't think it's weird at all. And I think you you welcome it. I mean, sometimes it's hard if someone says, like, please give me feedback um, because it's sort of an abstract question. But instead, it's like, hey, I did this in the argument section. Um, what do you think about that? Or, you know, I saw you flipped points one and two in the brief. Like, what's your thinking mm. about that? If you, if you get the question abstractly, please give me feedback, it's kind of easy to reply in broad generalities. And I hate when I hear myself thinking, saying things like, well, you just got to tighten up your writing. And, you know, I can give some examples as to what that means. But often <laughs> you learn the most from specific comments on specific assignments. And the other thing to remember is feedback is not just the formal end of the year, we call it dialogue and Hogan levels, where I read you the collected feedback from the partners. Every red line is feedback. Every red line is constructive criticism. And I try to put in comment bubbles when I'm doing edits to say, all right, you know, I'm changing this because, you know, that metaphor didn't work for me because it could be misread by the reader that way. And I can't do it on all my edits, but I try to do it on the big ones. And hopefully if you read that, you're getting a set of feedback from it, even though I haven't sat you down in my office after and had something called a feedback session. Mm. Um, Because the number one way you get better at doing law work is to do it. Like every rep you get, you get, you, you see some mistakes or you see some trends. You hopefully then say, okay, the way they fix those is X. Then when I do the next draft, I'm gonna do it that way. So hopefully that doesn't come back in the red line the next time. And then the next time after that, you work on some other thing that you see and you get better. And, you know, it's not a steady upward line. There will be bumps along the way where you're going to regress and go back to some of the old mistakes. But hopefully you'll see over time your draft is less red your third year as opposed to your first mm-hmm. year. And if it's not, then that's something you need to take more seriously. But most people just get better by doing it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. One of my favorite things when I can write it on a recommendation, I do is to say this person won't make the same mistake twice, right? It implies that it's totally fine, as Michelle said, for your first time not to be perfect. In fact, if your first time is perfect, 
you're some kind of unicorn and we need to bottle you up and figure out a way to get you into every law firm. But you're going to be judged on whether you do it twice or three times. But you can't see it because we're in podcast land. But Michelle was shaking her head vigorously, yes, to what Sean was saying. So I want to give you an opportunity. What are your thoughts on sort of how to get that feedback and tighten up that loop of getting better? I think the reality is there are some people who are great at giving feedback and some people who aren't. And I mean, for me personally, I tended to gravitate toward the people who gave me feedback because that was Hmm. so incredibly helpful as a junior attorney. The mentor that I started under as a summer associate, I still work with her today. And I've just followed her uh, because when you have that kind of mentor, it's so important. I think for the for the attorneys that I've worked with who haven't been, you know, affirmative about giving feedback, it is really important to try to carve out time as a junior associate to say, hey, you know, once I know I know everything's really busy right now with getting this brief on file, but once we get that on file, could we carve out, you know, 10, 20 minutes to just chat about the changes you made on this brief? And I think they'd be happy to do that, I would hope. I think something else that as a mentor myself and you know, working with junior and senior associates, I do for my group is we do quarterly just meetings on the calendar as a regular thing. Even if there's nothing to even you know, specifically address, it's just nice to have those reminders on calendar as kind of more formalized meetings. And then on top of that, just always kind of checking in weekly or daily even. Uh, at McDermott, we have Zoom and Zoom chat. And so I am notorious for being on Zoom chat to chat with my associates about whatever projects are happening. We have various groups there where we you know, hmm. gut check things against each other. And I think that's been incredibly helpful too, just with remote work, that we still have that kind of virtual forum to give each other feedback and get other people's opinions and kind of evolving with the practice as that's as it's become more virtual. It's just really incredibly important to not only get that feedback, but then as Sean was mentioning, you know, incorporate that. And Jonah, you too, you know, that one of the ways you can stand out as an associate is by showing that you absorb that feedback and that you incorporate it into your work in the future and that you're growing and evolving as an attorney. And I think when you're looking for feedback, you don't want to look for feedback just from somebody who's going to tell you you're great and you're wonderful and you're the best attorney who's ever come to our law firm. That's part nice because- too, though, Sean. <laughs> it is nice, but you want it from people yeah. who mean it. Because I think there are people who hand out empty praise, unfortunately, yeah. or whose praise you have to like discount heavily. You also want from people who are going to tell you some of the hard truths or who are going to tell you that this assignment wasn't what I was looking for. And, you know, we need to talk about how we're going to make it better next time. I worked for a partner, Chris Hanman, who went on to be the general counsel of Snapchat, who was amazing lawyer, incredibly creative writer, and such a good teacher, but he was also a stickler about how his documents looked and getting all of the tiniest details right. And it was pain finishing a brief with him. But at the same time, I have an eye for how things look on the page that when I now review associates' work, I hear Chris's voice in my head. And, you know, I got 360 feedback from my associates who said, and I take this as a compliment in a way, which is that you know, they like me a lot, but I'm kind of intimidating because I have really high standards. And I'm like, yeah, that's about right. Because the goal I think is for me is that I won't ask them to do anything I don't hold myself to. 
And, you know, I can finalize a document and I sometimes still upload briefs because I feel like I can't lose that skill and I can't ask them to do things that I'm not willing to do myself. But I think you also need to sort of like affirmatively look out from the people who are going to challenge you and push you a little bit harder than you're used to being pushed. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's such a challenge. I think part of the problem, and again, I'm, I'm outside now, so I can, I can ask you both as sort of current law firm partners, some people give real concrete, hard feedback, but do it either poorly or do it in a mean way, in an unnecessarily mean way. And so one of the things I try to teach my students is learn how to take feedback that is not given to you in the nicest package and accept it, accept the feedback parts and sort of push out the parts that are not so nice. But I guess my question is, how do you deal with those folks who either aren't giving you feedback or maybe are giving you feedback in ways that you feel is not productive? And I'm not talking about, I mean, there are plenty of horror stories, but just on the person who sort of says, who sends you back the brief and says, try again, right? Which is not a kind way of doing it and not a particularly helpful or directive way of doing it, but they may not have had ill intent by doing it. How do you deal with those folks? Yeah, I think, you know, first I would say if you're having that struggle with a particular partner and you're not sure how to, you know, tackle that, maybe you're a junior associate and you don't feel comfortable giving that person a call and saying like, hey, I would really appreciate it if you could be more specific about that feedback. I would talk to other associates and maybe senior associates who have worked with that person mm-hmm. before uh, to get a sense of how to interpret that kind of coded or vague feedback or how best to communicate with that person. You know, I think one of the realities of this job is that there's all different kinds of people with different kinds of skills who do amazing lawyer work, but not all of them are great managers. So you can still learn so much from those types of people, but it's just going to be a different path to doing that. And to be able to work with folks who aren't, you know, immediately really specific and helpful with their feedback and critique and, and advice, I think you, you have to work a little bit harder as an associate or as a, even as a partner who's working with another partner or a client to better understand the best way to, mm-hmm. to work with them and get the most value and feedback out of what they're giving you. Yeah, I I would also say like, you know, how do you work with those people who are mean? One of it is close your door and maybe just cry a little bit, which um, I think everybody in this business has done to a certain extent. I think it's really hard when you're new because you've gone from probably in your life high to high of being the best at everything you've done and only receiving external validation to a world where it turns out everybody was that and some of them are jerks and you know either fairly or unfairly are going to say you're no longer top of the heap anymore but the most important thing is to not Hmm. focus on points, but look at trends. Because if you have one crazy partner who has a completely divergent view of the quality of your work and your value as a lawyer, then you can probably discard that person as an outlier. Um, Although it's probably true that your partner is a better writer and legal thinker Hmm. than you, that is not always true. You know, particularly because there might be somebody who's like a great cross-examiner, but like cannot write the brief for the sake of them. And if you were being brought in to write the brief, like... Everybody has horror stories of people who drop in terrible comments on the brief and you just deal with that and you figure out, you know, is it you or is it me? And if it's just one person, then it's probably them. If it's a bunch of different people, then you've got to look inward a little bit. And I think what Michelle says about sort of triangulating that off of other people who work with that person is really important. 
And I think also at the end of the day, like dealing with crappy people is just part of the job. And so getting that experience, unfortunately, is yet another form of practice you're going to have working at law firms because there will be crummy judges who will yell at you and you can't do anything other than just sort of stand there and say thank you at the end of it. There will be crummy opposing counsel. Um, there will be crummy co-counsel. And unfortunately, learning how to like steal yourself take it as best you can and then move on with your life is yet another skill that you have to develop as a lawyer. Yeah. And maybe that's a shout out to anyone who's listening, who is a more senior lawyer that, that you don't have to be a crummy person and uh, it, it's worth it. I mean, I had some of the hardest work I've ever done, most hours, most intellectually intense, most time intensive and I would work with different people. And depending on who I worked with, I would have signed up for another 24-hour session. And that's because of how they treated me, even when I wasn't doing exactly right. And then there were people who I would never want to work with again for that exact reason. But I think both of those pieces of advice are really helpful. And again, I don't want to sugarcoat this. There are hard parts of this job, and you've both given some sort of concrete ways of dealing with it. Um, but we talked a little bit about the, the challenges or the points when juniors struggle. What are the things that juniors do that can really make them stand out? What are the things that make you say, yes, I want to work with Michelle again, or I want to work with Sean again, the junior associate version of yourself? <laughs> Enthusiasm, hard work, and hustle. Because you are, you know, at the junior levels, you are being hired for about like 80% like diligence and stick-to-itiveness and detail-orientedness and like 20% of like your legal knowledge and brilliance, um, which is to say that there is a lot of scut work that goes into the law, whether it is being the person who has to troll through 200 cases on Westlaw to find the 10 that are most important for the brief, whether it is the person who's doing the due diligence documents, whether it's the person who's, you know, reviewing the brief for the last three times to make sure we've squashed all the typos, those can be the suffocating parts of this job, but people unfortunately are not yet hiring you to go argue in front of the Supreme Court. What you bring is, is your sort of love of law and like willingness to learn and your willingness to do those tasks well and with good cheer. And if you do those things, you are going to stand out to me as opposed to somebody who kind of does the minimum and moves on. Like somebody who walks in and if I give them a research task or a brief section to write and they're like, really are like, hey, so I've been looking at these 20 cases and so I've been working <laughs> through the doctrine and I just want to get to the bottom of it. Like, that's the person where I'm like, yes, sit down. Let's talk about this together because I am a huge nerd too. <laughs> and I want to like feed off of your enthusiasm because at the end of the day, what's really cool about working with junior associates is like, I like my job a lot. But it turns out that like Hitting's file on a brief doesn't just have the same dopamine rush that it does because I've done it a bunch of times. Hmm. What's really cool is when it's your first time and getting to work with sort of waves of junior associates is you get a lot of people who have their first time doing something. And I love sort of feeding off of that energy. And if you have that energy, that's somebody I want to work with. Um, something that also is huge is somebody who gets the details right. We talked at the top of the podcast about people taking you seriously. As scary as this is, you are oftentimes the only person on the team who has read the document or read the case. You tell me that Smith versus Jones <laughs> held X. I believe you. And I'm not going to look myself. I mean, maybe if it's the key case that we come back to for our entire brief, I'll read it. But for the 90% totally. of cases you cite in the brief, I am not reading them again till oral argument, if that. 
So if you are wrong, that's going to look really bad for all of us. <laughs> and I need you to get that exactly right. Yeah. And I can't tell you how important that is because I think there are junior associates who figure that people are sweeping up behind me. And that is not true. And that is true, I think, on diligence. That's true on factual development. And that's true on case law stuff. That you are the only person who's going to know the details as well as you are. And so you've got to get them right. Like I can solve the writing, I can solve the organization, I can solve the structure, but I can't solve the pin site because I don't have time to do that. Right. And it goes back to what Michelle was saying earlier, which is on those early assignments, we ca you care a lot more about quality than quantity, right? Like that's, I had a, did a version of this episode for summer associates. And one of the things that everybody said was like, you don't get an award for having worked on the most cases. <laughs> if you ever get an award, it's because the the one or two cases that you worked on, people really appreciated the quality of your work. Michelle, what 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 do you think helps people stand out or or respond to Sean, whichever you prefer? Yeah. So, and Jonah, it's really interesting that you said that about summer associates because I think that is one of the distinctions when it comes to summer versus now hmm. you're an associate associate. Yeah. Uh, because you know, suddenly, yes, you have to have excellent quality work, but we are counting your hours. Which yes. This is an hours-based business, and so you not only do have do you have to be producing amazing work, but you have to be hitting your hours, and you can't be overbilling clients, right? So there's immense pressure on junior associates to do phenomenal, spotless, perfect work at pretty aggressively low numbers of hours spent on that work. And then, you know, doing it again and again and again. So it is a high pressure job. And everything Sean said about standing out, I totally agree with. And I think what, just to summarize it, I think it all comes down to, can we trust you? The associates mm. I love working with the absolute most are the ones that I know I can trust because they have that great attitude. They're going to go above and beyond. They're going to make sure that the quality, that the work that they turn into me is high quality, fully proved. They've read all the cases. They've thought about all the counter arguments. They've been in the data room for M&A deals and turned over every corner, every, every folder, even if it's not labeled employment, they've looked at it to make sure that there's no employment matters in there. And I know that they're going to come to me with what they is their absolute best work. And I'm there to check it and support them. I'm not going to be digging through the data room as well because clients are going to pay for two lawyers to do that, right? So mm -hmm. it's really important that they can, on that first go, provide something that we can trust is right. Mm -hmm. And you know, for, for the, the junior attorneys that we're training up, we're going to be checking a little bit more, just to be sure, of course. But mm -hmm. Sean's absolutely right. We're not going to be double-checking all of your cases. We're not going to be double-checking your... Uh, you know, all the documents that you read through the 20 page, you know, complaint that that you summarized, we're going to assume that what you did is correct. And we have to be able to trust that. So that's what makes junior associates stand out the most is that their attitude, their quality is is spot on. And they're showing that when we do give them feedback, they're incorporating that so we can trust them to continue to progress. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, one of the things, Michelle, that you've done is you've worked sort of in transactional type work and litigation. Do you think there are any differences to sort of being a standout junior litigation associate versus a standout transactional associate? Or are they just different tasks with the same overarching goals? Yeah, I think the themes are really similar, Jonah. I mean, the work is pretty different, but I think the themes are similar in the sense that it really helps if you're a proactive associate. So you know, if you're on a litigation matter and you're the most junior attorney on the matter, 
and you see that the case is kind of sitting there and we haven't gotten discovery out or, uh, you know, our deadline to file a motion for summary judgments coming up in a month or two. And the senior attorney or the partner on the matter is is focusing on something else. We want you to be proactive and mm. call our attention to it and be thinking about, you know, what are we doing 90 days down the road and are we prepared for that? And what do we need to be doing this week and next week to prepare for that? Likewise with deal work, you know, where where we're employment lawyers, kind of specialists on the deal, diligencing the company that our client is buying. You know, we want to make sure that you're proactive and and flagging for the partner's attention or the senior associate's attention who's supervising you like, hey, you know, just found this new class action lawsuit complaint that they uploaded to the data room. Maybe you don't have the experience to to know yourself as a mm. junior attorney if this is a big deal or a little deal. This is material, as we say. But make sure you're flagging that you know, proactively for the partner that you're working with so you can get on top of that. And also be proactive with those types of clients, you know, post close to make sure that if if we've spotted an issue with the company that our client just bought and we let them know about it, that after the, they close that deal, we're proactively checking back in with our client to find out like, hey, you know, would you like us to help you fix this now? Hmm. And all of that kind of being that that positive attitude, that kind of go-getter attitude is really helpful in kind of all the contexts. Yeah, I love that. We all have fairly young kids and that idea <laughs> of being able to identify that it's a deal, but trying to teach teach folks who haven't had as much life experience, the difference between a little deal and a big deal is something that I think I would take from my parenting, but also <laughs> in my life as a lawyer. One of the things that you both touched on, and I'll come back to you, Sean, is you know one of the challenges of being a junior lawyer is you're also billing your time. And so it, it has really odd and kind of not necessarily intuitive incentives about how long to send on a task um, how to have balance both in your work, but also in your work and life. Any thoughts or tips on sort of time management in the billable hour for someone who hasn't worked and lived it like you both have for, for uh, I won't say exactly how long, but the better parts or more than a decade? <laughs> I think that at first it becomes sort of terrifying to think like somebody is paying $50 for that email. And like, if you... If you exist that way, you will overwhelm yourself. It really is more like, well, they're paying $100,000 for this brief, which is a ton of money. But on the other hand, when you think, well, but it's like a $10 million exposure, you're like, yeah, $100,000. I mean, you know, the odds come out right. Like sometimes if you have, in my business, for instance, a low chance certiorari petition to the Supreme Court and someone says, why would someone pay $200,000 for that? I say, well... Right. It's a hundred million dollar issue to the company, so if they have a one million, you know, one percent chance of getting it, like, yeah, do it. So I think one thing is just like reminding yourself how the hours and the money fit into larger deals and cases, so you don't parallelize yourself thinking, like, what if I spend an hour on this? Because partly, like, on the one hand, yes, we don't want you spending fifty hours researching cases. On the other hand, no client is ever going to say, right. like, don't spend an hour on Westlaw, because what if you don't find the case that's hugely important and you only find out about it later? That's worse. That's bad. In terms of sort of concrete advice, a big thing is, like, ask the people you're working for, how long do you think I should be spending on this? 
um, because when they worked up this matter, they had a budget in mind. That budget is often what we call bottom up, which is you say you take the people you're putting on the deal or the assignment, you sort of hypothetically put in their hours and multiply it by their rates and come up with a number. And then you kind of cross check that against your sort of gut feeling as to how much this should cost. And that's like called top down budgeting. And you kind of triangulate on those numbers. So they have an idea of how long this should take. And they're going to tell you. And then what you do is you say, all right, I'm going to try to do it in that amount of time. And hopefully you do it in that amount of time. But if you're not, tell me. You've got to come and tell me. Like, you told me to go find this case, Sean, and you said it would take an hour. I'm not finding it. And so do you want to keep me on it or should I just let up now? Because the last thing I want is for me to send you off, say it takes five hours, and get a bill. And this happens sometimes where it's like, oh, this took 30 hours and I'm only seeing it for the first time on the, the pre-bill. That's not good. That makes me frustrated because yes, I'll write it down. Yes, I'll meet the client's expectations, but that's like pain for me as a partner because of how statistics at law firms work and otherwise. And either I'm going to have a talk with you or I'm just going to sort of shake my fist and say, Jonah, ah, and then you sort of go on with things. But at the same time, and, and this comes back to more of the psychological advice, is like you can't let the hours destroy your life or like run your life. Because once you get to be a trusted, well-oiled associate and, you know, like people trust you and they want you on things, your hours will fill up and your problems start becoming how do you cut back on your hours? Totally. And like if you just are a good attorney, you will find a good pace of cases without feeling like you need to slow walk it to fill up your cup. You will have so much you need to do. You're going to be at like a normal, efficient pace just because of all the things you have to do. Yeah. it's. I remember that, at, you know, in my own beginning, I felt like, oh, I need to take on more work because I'm not doing enough work. Or I felt like I had to spend a ton of time on something because I had the bandwidth to do it. And then a year or six months later, I was completely overwhelmed because I took on more work and I forgot that like your view of how long things take is not and how things are going to happen in the future. If you haven't experienced it yet, you don't have sort of the ability to sort of see the see the tea leaves. What, what are your thoughts on sort of time management in the billable life, Michelle? Yeah, so totally agree with what Sean said. I, I, I always give associates the the advice that, you know, first of all, never leave a meeting with a partner who's assigning you work without knowing how long they think it should take you. And we don't always tell you because I'm not always thinking, oh, I got to tell them this is going to take them an hour and a half. I try to. I try to be good about that. But I'm not perfect. So please ask me if I don't tell you, because that's really important that we are aligned at the outset. Also, never leave a an assignment meeting, that initial meeting, without really understanding what the work is that mm. you've been assigned, right? I think there's a tendency, especially with juniors, I wouldn't say just juniors, I think it's with all lawyers, to kind of feel like we're supposed to know things. Um, and then someone says, hey, Michelle, I want you to draft a demur. Can you do that? And I say, sure, no problem. And I go back to my office and I'm like, oh, I don't know what a demur is, right? So uh, <laughs> it's okay to ask, right? Please do ask. And sometimes more senior attorneys uh, forget that, you know, what it's like to be a first year or a third year and you haven't done the thing yet and we're speaking a different language and we will sit down and you know, talk to you about it or point you in the right direction for a good resource to start. That's really important. Um, I think something that I had to learn as a junior attorney um, that really served me well going forward and making a good first impression is making sure to hit those hours expectations and knowing that you're going to sit down 
And sometimes you'll be sitting down that day and work 12 or 14 hours that day, and you're going to bill, you know, eight or 10 hours because not all of that time is billable. A lot of it is learning, especially as a junior associate. Every time I'd sit down and write a motion in my first, second, third year, I would first pull the secondary source, the rudder guide on that motion and read it front to back. And that was not, that was my time, right? That was my learning uh, that was something I did to prepare before I sat down and typed the first word in that brief and started my clock, right? So that's something that I did to really make sure that I was honing my craft and learning early on. I think that, Jonah, the, the problem is that once you do build up your workload, the, the question in this job is always, how do you make sure to have that work-life balance? <laughs> It's not just billable, right? Like right. You, you both have been able to do this for as long as you have, which means you've found, and I try not to use the word yeah. work-life balance because it's never perfectly balanced, but like a work-life existence. Like what Like what do you do? Yeah. I mean, I have kind of a a varied approach over the, the years of my practice because for part of my practice, I was reduced hours or part-time, however you refer to it at your various firms. When I, I have two kids. I had my first kid in 2015 and my second in 2017, and they are now much older than I'd like to admit. <laughs> but when I first <laughs> uh, when I first had my first kid, I, I came back. I came back at a reduced uh, hours schedule, just because I wasn't sure how that was going to go, and my my group was great about it. So that helped me. And then even beyond that, I decided, you know what? For me, at least for these first few years of having babies. I want to spend more time with them. So I made the decision to be reduced hours until 2020. I went back to full time. And really for me, it wasn't because, you know, I, I know a lot of people deal with juggling schedules and pick up and drop off and, and having to have free time for that. That wasn't my path for me. I just wanted the extra bandwidth in my week or month to like take the random Tuesday off and go to Disneyland and not feel like I was taking my hours because of it. And so for the first few years of having babies, we we would just take the random Tuesday off and go to Disneyland. And I'd be feeling like, okay, I can do this. This is really balanced. I ended up going back to full-time in 2020 because I was one of the people at my firm who raised their hand to be an expert at like whatever this new thing called COVID was. And it turned out to be the next two years of my life, which is very, you know, it took a lot of a lot of time to really read up on. I, I felt like a junior associate all over again because I was a partner at this firm but we were learning about not only this new, mm. you know, disease and and all of the the new laws that were coming out to to deal with it. I remember there was one time when a federal law came out. I think it was 800 pages, and we wanted we had to get on client calls later that day about the law. So I was I felt like I was back to square one learning myself, which is actually quite a, a different thing for an employment lawyer, because as an employment lawyer, you are a specialist. You learn the laws in your first kind of couple of years and you keep up with the changes, but you get a good sense of the law and then you can kind of just go from there and give that quick advice for clients. So that was new for me, uh, became full-time. And I, I've still been able to, you know, knock wood, relatively successfully, I think, manage that balance, but it's, 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 it's not a set it and forget it solution, right? And it's different every week or every day. There are some weeks that are just incredibly hmm. busy and I'm working the entire week and the weekend and I have a very understanding spouse <laughs> um, who who helps with that with the kids a lot. And so we we just find that balance on those weeks. And then there are other weeks when it's a little bit quieter, maybe it's a holiday and I could kind of sneak away. 
And I think hybrid work has also been such a Mm. blessing for our profession because it gives you back some time that you're otherwise spending commuting that you're not with your family. You're not working on that brief. You're just kind of stuck in the car uh, in in total LA fashion. But uh, I think that's been really helpful. And it's something you really have to have discipline about because I think a lot of lawyers who end up in big law, it's because you have a certain type of personality. You're competitive. You want to be that A-plus student. And one of the ways to be an A-plus student is to do more work. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to cut yourself off, right? Do the work, get the work done for clients, but also make sure to have the discipline to be there for the other areas of your life that are not work that are so important to maintain. Absolutely. Well, Sean, I, I'm curious for your uh, your advice, although maybe the advice should be we should move to a warm place from DC where we could go to Disney World on a Tuesday or Disneyland on a Tuesday. <laughs> but what, what are your thoughts on sort of finding that, for lack of a better word, balance, especially at, at various points in your life? But, you know, I know we're all sort of in the in the young parent stage, but there are plenty of people with many needs of their time. Yeah, I think the first thing is, is that it's never going to be you know, you're never going to have a 40 hour week. That's eight hours a day, eight hours a day, eight hours a day, eight hours a day, eight hours a day. Maybe you do. Maybe there are some weeks that are like that. I maybe have that more than some others, but it's primarily, it's primarily going to be busy, 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 not as busy, not as busy, not as busy. And one of the biggest mistakes I see, you know, junior associates make is they don't take advantage of that dip. And I think it's true of a lot of lawyers, including junior partners, who one of my partners call it sort of the, you know, the Eastern European peasant syndrome, where you're like, I have eaten yesterday, but how will I eat today? How will my family ever eat again? Because if you're not going out and scrambling and trying to hustle at every moment of every day, you think that nobody will ever want you to work again. And that's not true. The work will come back. But if you don't, but if you're at, if you're at a top level all of the time, you're just going to burn yourself out. Mm -hmm. Um, And as Michelle said, the only person who's going to stop you is you. Unfortunately, law firms are not designed to set up to help somebody protect themselves from themselves. I mean, if you're lucky, you might have a partner or a mentor who's going to step in and say, whoa, you need to chill out a little bit. But it's very unlikely you're going to have that in part because, you know, I don't see you every day and I'm worried with my own stuff. So I might not notice that you're going to run yourself out or look, I have so much of my own stuff to do that. I'm just happy to keep adding on top of your plate mm-hmm. until it, till it collapses. So you've got to, you've got to enjoy the dips and trust that the work is going to come back and take that day off because otherwise you're not, you're not going to get through it. The other thing I think that's also good about big law is, you know, I have a running joke that big law is wonderful because you can work whatever 14 hours are most convenient for you, which is a joke. But it's also true. Like nobody clocks in when I come to my desk. Nobody clocks in when I leave for the day. Nobody cares if I have to jump on a Zoom for my kid's school in the middle of the day or take them to a doctor's appointment or any of that. So if I need to disappear for three hours in the middle of the day, I'm at the point in my career where I don't even have to tell anybody. Maybe when you're more junior and you're in the midst of a deal or something, you've got to tell somebody. But you can do that. And I think it's a, you know, I think you forget the blessing that is when you compare yourself to people who have literally have to punch in and punch mm-hmm. out of their lives. And, you know, some of my kids have to go to some specialist appointments. And I think like they're only available at 10 a.m. on a second Tuesday of the month. And you think, what would I do if I were the fry cook at Burger King? Like it's not not everybody has that. And it's it's one of the benefits of our profession that I think people overlook. But it's a very real one. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even in my hardest days, right, if you have other priorities, you just need to make them priorities and the ability to work other hours. I mean, this is a conversation that I have a lot on the podcast with people, especially about the difference between what it's like to practice law in 2022 or even 2012, as opposed to 1962. We do have a profession that technology allows us exactly what you say, Sean, which is the ability to sort of work whatever, I like that, work whatever 14 hours you want. Time is flying and we're getting close to the to the end of it. Um, and I want to make sure I, I give enough time for you to sort of take the advice wherever you want to give it. So what's one thing that you want to leave people who are just starting out in our profession? That could be something you wish you knew years ago or something that you really want to impart on people who are just getting started. I think, Sean, you're first this time and then we'll go to Michelle. Sure. This is kind of the pep talk that I leave most speaking engagements with, and it's two things, really. The first is that it's one of, I think, the greatest privileges to get to help people solve their problems through application of the rule of law. I do a lot of administrative procedure litigation, as you mentioned in my introduction, which means that I spend a lot of time litigating against the United States of America, which is the greatest nuclear superpower that the world has ever seen. And yet, I, Sean Murata, kind of a chubby, out-of-shape guy sitting at a desk can write something on a piece of paper and give it to another person who's wearing a robe. And because I wrote something on the piece of paper and that person wrote something on a piece of paper, the greatest nuclear superpower the world has ever seen does stuff and stops doing things. Like, that's really cool. And we as lawyers have the tremendous privilege to get to use that power uh, for our clients and to resolve things that would otherwise be solved by like taking it out to an alleyway or warlords or paying off some guy in government and do it, you know, whatever you think about our current legal system through a system that is by and large pretty fair and orderly. And that's really cool. And then the other thing I'll say is that if you're a junior associate, who is struggling and you feel like the water's coming over your head or you feel like you're stuck all alone, there are people who care about you. Um, And it's gonna be, you know, your mentors at your firm, it's gonna be your friends, it's gonna be your family. It's me, if you need it to be me, um, at SM Murata on Twitter. And if you feel like you don't have anybody and it's really, you're drowning, please reach out because we wanna help you. And we want to help you be better lawyers. We want to help you be just more rounded people. And even sometimes if that advice is you need a new job, which sometimes it is and has been, you know, the thing about being a lawyer at a big law firm is we take in 50 summer associates and first year associates. We don't make 50 partners in eight years. That's not how the system works. So a lot of the system is like helping people find better Mm -hmm. stuff for them. And we want to help you succeed. And so don't feel like you have to suffer alone because you don't have to, and it, this, this job can be bearable and can even be fun. And don't feel like it has to be misery just because that's the stereotype. And if it is, then, then get some help because we really want to help. Awesome. Michelle? Yeah, that's such great advice, Sean. And if it weren't for Sean being so amazing on Twitter and opening his DMs and being supportive of me. I don't think I would have met so many people on hashtag law Twitter or appellate Twitter. I think one of the pieces of advice I'd give to 
attorneys starting out or any attorneys really is don't leave your personality at the door. Mm. It can be a great way to stand out in a really great way at a law firm is, you know, we don't expect you to shut off the fact that you're a human being. And in fact, I think at least in my practice area of employment law, it's a really great asset for you to be a human being. You are dealing with human beings, right? Uh, Judges are humans. Uh, The employees that you're helping the companies draft policies for our human beings. So yes, we definitely want you to think like a lawyer and find all the traps and that anxiety you feel about everything in your personal life and your lawyer life is so helpful as well. <laughs> um, definitely served me as a lawyer, but we also want you to think like a human because I think that's something mm. that, especially as a junior lawyer, I didn't always tap into, I thought, okay, this is the law, so we have to do X. And we also should be thinking about, okay, but how is that going to make the the workforce feel? Like, is this going to be well-received? How do we want to Hmm. communicate that? So be a human being. And I think not only does that mean, you know, think like a human and think through the way that the, the advice you're giving and the policies you're drafting and the contracts that you're redlining are going to be received and ultimately kind of impact the client and their client's workforce if you're an employment lawyer, but also to just be a human being at work yourself and to be mm-hmm. to be nice, right? So I think, you know, my approach has always been to be kind of a cheery, happy, helpful person. That's just my, that's just who I am. Um, so it kind of comes naturally. And this is going to sound very like 1999 wear sunscreen of me, but I think don't let the stress of the profession make you into a mean person, right? I think that there's a lot of really smart people that uh, go into law and it is a really stressful, hard job, especially this, the big law work. And, you know, I think a lot of the time when people are stressed out, they can jump to being kind of mean to someone else. And that's never the right way to be, right? Take the 30 seconds to take your five deep breaths and say it in a nicer way. Um, and as a junior associate, you know, when you're walking through the halls of your law firm and you walk past the assistant that you work with, like stop and talk to them and find out about their day and what's going on with them. They have a stressful job too. It's probably more stressful than yours, frankly. <laughs> um, and find out, you know, what's going on with people and sing other people's praises when you have the opportunity to. And don't throw people under the bus even when you have the opportunity to. Like all of these things are mm-hmm. the way that you, you know, if from a selfish perspective, even you're going to make a great impression on others when you're nice to people and you uh, are positive and sing people's praises and give people constructive feedback that they can actually incorporate. And something that I, frankly, as a junior lawyer who's a, a super introvert, frankly, <laughs> I had to learn a little bit, you know, to start off an email with something nice like, hi, I hope you're doing well. My default was, I don't want to take up too much of your time. We'll just get right to it. And on calls too, but not, you know, people want to chat and it's a great thing to do. And it's a great way to form relationships. And so much of what we do in this profession is relationship building, right? It comes back to, Absolutely. goes back to that trust factor. And so, you know, don't shut that part of yourself off. Just remember that you are a human being and that's an asset. I love it. Well, I want to thank both of you. Um, I want to take this time to thank thank both of you and praise both of you for both coming on, but also for your very public facing work. I know because I try to traffic in those same spaces. It's not as easy as it looks. It takes time, but it's important. And also, if you're listening, 
I pick two people who I really respect, although I've never met them in person, but there are lots of people out there that can give you this advice. So go find a mentor. If you can't find one, again, I'll put myself out there at Jonah Perlin on Twitter, find me and I'll help you find one. But there's absolutely somebody that can give you some advice and some help and some support. And we got to support each other as people, um, as Michelle and Sean were both saying. So thank you both for all your work and for being here. And for anybody listening, if you're early on in your career, uh, best of luck. It takes a little bit of luck and being good. So thanks so much for being here. And uh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.